Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Room and Broom podcast. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based with the PG Rights and Seeds team at Lincoln in Canterbury, New Zealand. So look, this latest podcast is part two of a two-part series that hopefully um, will get some information out to those of you in flood-affected regions of the North Island in New Zealand. Look, to be honest, it's been a simply awful summer for many of you. This ongoing rain just won't let up. And now just to, to finally, you know, challenge things further, uh, we're dealing with a cyclone that's come down from the tropics. So, look, we thought it was probably timely to pull together some information for any of you that are ever affected uh, by any aspects of flooding, uh, you know, that affects essentially your forage crops, your pastures and your supplementary feeds. In part one of this two-part series, we did pull together some suggestions to consider around managing your way through dealing with flood-damaged supplementary feeds. So if you're interested in that topic and you haven't already listened to that, just go back and find part one. But hey, look, in the meantime, we'll start the second part of a two-part series with a, a repeat of a disclaimer, I guess, that we've put with everything to do with managing flood damage uh, in a farming situation. It's, of course, very challenging to provide any specific recommendations around what you should do with your flood damage, supplementary feeds or forage crops. As you well know, there's certainly not a one-size-fits-all kind of set of advice dealing with everything to do with flood-damaged feeds and crops and pastures. To follow in the second part of our two-part uh, podcast around flooding and water damage is some generalised information around managing the way through following flood damage to your summer forage crops, but also for any crops that have been flood damaged that you're hoping to take through into the winter. And this information certainly does not replace the advice uh, of the team of people uh, that are working around you on your property, uh, on your business. So that may be a, a consultant, veterinarian, uh, rural support, trust person, rural merchant, dairy and Z, beef and lamb, the whole team. And hope that this uh, is a little bit of help for you. Do remember that Google has got a lot of information out there and something from a New Zealand-specific point of view is, of course, to mention good Dairy NZ resources around how to manage your way through flooding. And there's a particularly good flow chart with the Dairy NZ flooding information around assessing your pastures of what to, uh, to do with flood-affected pastures. For those of you uh, with dry stock, beef and lamb, the website contains a lot of really good information around floods and, and getting your way through. So look, with this latest podcast, we're going to start off with a range of topics and work our way with a whole lot of things specifically to do, as we mentioned before, flood damage to forage crops. The first aspect around assessing your flood damage crops is, of course, to only do this once it's safe to do so. Look, your, your well-being and your family's safety, friends' safety, is number one priority, of course. It's an absolute given. So when it's safe and able to do so, then you can step through some of the other things we're going to cover today around assessing your forage crops once it's safe to do so. So the second point of this podcast, once it's safe to have a look at some of your crop ground, is of course some thoughts of what to do with your summer or winter forage crops once that floodwater is receding or is actually receded and it's um, safe enough to get on that ground. I guess we'll look at what you may or may not expect to see, um, but of course taking our thoughts in conjunction with someone local, like your rural merchant rep, to come out with you and walk those crops with you so you're not having to um, decide what to do all by yourself. If you're listening to this right at the point that the flood waters are receding, maybe call and book in today with your trusted advisor, your farm consultant or rural merchant to come and have a look at your crop ground when it's safe to do so over the coming days. And then you've got a booking booked in. They're going to be quite busy. And uh, as we said in the previous podcast to do with post-flood issues, many heads knocked together come out with some amazing solutions rather than trying to do all the heavy lifting on your own about what to do. Point number three, uh, along with uh, aspects discussed in this podcast, is working through some aspects around silt or other contaminants that may have come along for the ride 
with your floodwaters and some of the things to think about there. The fourth point uh, around this Flooding on Forage Crop podcast is to look at some plans to think about or to consider over the coming weeks about what to do with your forage crops. And this is again in conjunction uh, with rural professional support um, around, uh, you know, your consultant or whomever. Then the final point here we're going to talk about is going to touch briefly on animal health risks around grazing forage crops post-flooding. Again, we'd just say that this animal health discussion is by no way meaning to replace the advice of your veter- very own veterinarian, of course, knows your farm and you much, much better than uh, than us talking away on a podcast. And then, of course, for those of you that may have uh, crop insurance, of course, involving your own insurance assessors if they are involved in the cleanup process post floods. Anyway, let's get the second of our two-part series of podcasts around managing flood damage feeds underway. I guess like anything in life, you know, particularly when you're under a fair bit of pressure or challenged with some uh, issues, in this case with flooding, it's good to kind of step through each of these parts of approaching things such as this crop damage with flood water and I guess small bite-sized chunks, so it's just a bit easier to manage and to get your head around. So let's look at number one. Let's say the floodwaters have receded, there's no hazards uh, around. It's safe for you to get to your crop paddocks and to start to assess them and what you need to be looking at. Firstly, as we say, check for safe access. You know, we don't want a power line down in the paddock. Um, we don't want water that, you know, that could end up with either yourself or your staff or any of your stock getting involved with, particularly when fences are missing and you've got access into rivers or, or some um, deep water that's still lying around. As well, we're obviously going to aim to remove any rubbish or stuff in your way that's going to pose a risk to to people or to grazing animals. Once it's safe to do so, probably what you want to do, and preferably with someone along for moral support as as much as the technical support, is of course start to review on a paddock-by-paddock basis the extent of damage to your forage crops. And here we're talking about both summer and maybe winter forage crops. We'll leave maize out of this and perhaps that's a topic another day that we can cover with people that know a lot of stuff about that. But we're talking specifically about forage crops. So what we're looking first for is within the various areas, and clearly you're probably going to have some areas that are untouched by floodwaters and others that are more severely affected, is looking for evidence of plant loss. Now this may be in the case, for example, if you're tankered type bulb turnips, you know, that have washed washed away, or in the case of stemia crops like forage rape or raphnobrassica or kale that may still be standing with some areas that have been lodged if you've had uh, river like flowing water go through those crops. We'll be looking at areas that are still underwater and probably noting the dates so we know how long that they've been underwater. Then we'll look at areas that are still draining versus other areas that were wet and are now fully drained and may soon be suitable for grazing. While we are in the crop paddocks having a look together, we'll be taking an assessment of infrastructure damage, culverts, you know, can you actually get stock into crop paddocks, have have culverts survived intact or is some repair work going to be required there? So an absolute given looking at fencing, both in terms of permanent fencing and any temporary fencing you had set up that you need to try and retrieve your power supply, hopefully you got that out before the floods came. And, of course, stock water. But the irony is that with all this water everywhere, we're looking for stock water, your infrastructure being intact. Hopefully you've got buried alkathene piping that's well underground and not damaged. Otherwise, if there's any above-ground areas where you've got water supply damaged, they'll have to get replenished before we can graze stock. And again, it's ironical, but you know, if, if you had quite deep flood water, some of your troughs may need cleaning out if contaminated. If you start grazing your crops and you've still got areas of pasture underwater, you may be feeding quite a bit of supplementary feed dry feeds and, you know, blends and troughs and, and, and hay or silage and remembering all those feeds don't contain as much water as, as forage crop and pasture do. So ironically, in the middle of a post-flood event, uh, your cattle uh, or sheep may indeed require more water, stock water, than what they did prior to the floods. 
If the likes of forage rape or raphnobrassica or kale is still standing, and we hope it is, and it hasn't lodged um, or been washed away, we obviously just want to see the state of those plants. I'm going to come back um, to that point with bulb turnips and, and possibly fodder beet if you've got that for autumn or winter feeding. I guess we just check if they're still anchored, whether they're actually being washed downstream, are they buried, or are they silt-covered but not too bad, but you know, possibly in need of a bit of some gentle rain, ironically, again, to, to wash that off. And, and clean them up, make them more presentable for animals to eat. I guess so if you've got dairy cows, we're going to have to think what it's going to be like if we get a five or 550 kilo cow um, treading on conditions underfoot. How long are we going to have to wait until the conditions are firm enough so that the animals don't do a lot of soil compaction or actually get this stuck themselves? And uh, getting a bit of an assessment for suitability of walking not only into a paddock to actually get to the break that they need to reach to get back onto crop. Lots of photos of crops, lots of photos off to as many of your rural support group as you have around uh, your rural merchants. You know, even the last couple of days we've been receiving photos and videos walking through crops asking for opinion on what we can do with crops. So photos and short videos on your phone aren't as good as having someone in the paddock with you, but it can certainly uh, give those people who are ready to support you some ideas of what to expect when they do get out to come and see you. It's amazing technology having a phone in your pocket to collect all this stuff, so do take advantage of that. As far as the damage to your forage crop summer or winter and the loss of plants, it's going to depend on a whole range of factors and therefore we can't make a sort of broad brush suggestion around how your crops are going to do in terms of survival and performance from now on. A lot of it's to do with not only how much water went through your crop, but how long that water stayed on the crop paddocks. So if you had uh, your crop paddock exposed to water that rose very, very quickly over a short period of time and then dropped away again over a short period of time, those crops are potentially going to be better off than if the, the floodwaters came in very gradually and lifted very slowly to reach their peak and then took a good number of days to disperse again. So quick water in and out, less damaging water that's going to stick around for a long period of time. Essentially, crops that have been underwater for more than 48 hours are at risk of a depletion of not only oxygen, but also nutrients being supplied to the roots of your crop. Now what happens with flooding is that water replaces or fills up the air gaps around the crop's roots. So you think about the ecosystem that is our soil, is that, you know, well-prepared crop paddocks with sound soil structure do have a lot of air in around um, the soil. Now with reduced oxygen and nutrients, we end up with an increasing risk of plant loss simply because plants are living beings just like us and they need oxygen and they need nutrients to not only grow, but also simply to survive during periods of uh, some climatic stress on them. As well as that, plants are able to a point to shut down, to drop into survival mode, I guess, while their roots and lower stem or bulb material are covered in water. They close up the little stomata underneath the leaves as a survival mechanism and photosynthesis slows right down. So the plants, to a point, are quite clever at being able to survive. But as we said before, it depends very much on how long that water remains over the plant and how long it takes to recede. So yeah, unfortunately plant damage is worse when flood water has ponded for prolonged periods, you know, perhaps a week or so. And as well, if the temperatures, so if the sun comes out and the temperatures increase and that water gets quite warm, that will also increase risk of plant loss because the presence of moisture and warmth is going to really accelerate a lot of the diseases that will reduce the viability and potentially contribute to the demise of your plants. So many fungal diseases, bacterial diseases that thrive in warm water and potentially even after the water's receded, the fact that the, the um, flood itself has actually damaged plants, allowing those opportunistic pathogens to get into those plants, into the tissue of the plants and overwhelm that plant with infection. Another aspect for some of you where your crops have been at risk of inundation 
with high salinity water, in other words, salt water for coastal crops, uh, and particularly with, with the cyclone that's come through New Zealand, has contributed to a storm surge where we have, for example, our brassica crops, and there's been salinity, essentially salt water joining fresh water and flooding your crops. Unfortunately, the presence of salt, sodium chloride, will increase risk of uh, brassica plant loss, particularly just simply through the inability to tolerate salt. So as if the actual water wasn't bad enough and associated disease in following days, uh, fungal and bacterial disease, unfortunately salt toxicity in its own right will increase risk of brassica plant losses. A lot of work and anecdotal feedback around how long can both pastures and forage crops last underwater When we look at flood events coming through, particularly in the South Island of New Zealand in the cold winter months, we've got a much greater chance of survival of pastures and forage crops compared with our summer storm events that bring through a lot of floodwaters but accompanied by higher ambient temperatures. And it's the higher temperatures and flooding that contributes to the demise of crops more quickly, unfortunately, than when it's much colder during winter storm events, particularly down south. That said, even down south in um, the summer of 2020, February 2020, there were Southland summer floods that covered a, a wide range of winter feed crops, brassicas and fodder beet, and those crops remained underwater for three or more days. And many of those crops unfortunately failed after just three days underwater, mainly because the ponding of the floodwater in February of 2020 resulted in a a lot of heating of the floodwater very quickly in the summer sun. And unfortunately, given the timing of this current North Island weather event and the fact that even though it's quite cool at the moment, we're likely to see both warmth and humidity over coming days and weeks, those crops that have been underwater for more than a few days may be less likely to survive. Again, there's not a recipe for this about predicting whether your crops will survive or not, and this is why it's really good to get someone with some good experience in dealing with crops in adverse conditions to walk the crops with you. In terms of different types of crops, will some survive better than others? To be honest with you, it's more likely the duration of time underwater, in other words, whether the floods came through very quickly and and got to, to peak and then dropped very quickly, or whether they pondered for a good number of days or even a week or more, the time that the crops are covered by water is a better predictor of likelihood of crop survival than necessarily differences between species. So say for brassicas, you know, we essentially say they're all vulnerable to to warm water and subsequent humidity and disease pressure or even pest pressure. But yeah, it's more likely the duration of time they've been covered in water than necessarily between species or, or between cultivar effects. So in terms of once the water's receded and in the warm, humid summer conditions, there's a range uh, of potential diseases that will affect our brassica crops specifically. And here at the Rumen Room, we're more in the business of animal health, nutrition, and it's best for you to revert to your rural merchant rep, or as I said, PG Rights and Seeds local reps can be contacted for advice as well. But we're probably going to see conditions that we'd simply describe as uh, soft rots. That's kind of like a, describes a lot of different conditions, including but not limited to sclerotinia, rhizoctonia, and or black rot that will destroy potentially stem, also contribute to rotting out of bulbs depending on damage to the bulbs and ultimately uh, killing the plants. So you can identify these and talk further about this with your rural merchant or PG Rights and Seas rep. As well as that, those of you that sadly have succumbed to some damage perhaps by breaching um, flood banks or water from a river where you've actually had physical water running quickly through your crop paddocks, Unfortunately, the physical damage by uh, fast-flowing floodwater and it's accompanying, it's got sticks and rocks and everything else flowing through it as well. Unfortunately, the stuff that's flowing in the water can damage the bulbs uh, in the case of turnips and or stems in the case of forage, rape and raffinol and kale. And that will unfortunately increase risk of these soft rots, black rots settling in and therefore contributing to plant loss. So again, if you've had water that's gently increased perhaps from springs on your own property and then dropped again, you haven't had fast flowing water, you may have a little bit less 
soft rot than someone that had a river literally flowing through the crop paddock and damaging the bulb or stems of your crop. Probably a third point as far as crops go that's a common one is talking about floodwater contaminants and your summer forage crops. Now look, we always talk about the term silt, and we talked a bit about silt in the first part of this two-part podcast series as it relates to silt depositing mud and soil on conserved forage feeds. Look, in a similar way, silt, mud, soil, whatever you want to call it, that covers bulb crops in, in the lower parts of forage rape or, or kale or raphnobrassica stems, may increase risk of fungal uh, and or bacterial plant diseases. Now, obviously, we have got a lot of soil that's arrived in your paddock and been left adhering to your crop. There's a lot of uh, spores that have come in from adjacent paddocks uh, or even the, the farm next door. And we've got a lot of soil-borne diseases that increases risk of spreading. As well as that, while soil is adhering or stuck to the bulbs or to the stems, that's preventing those stems from drying out probably and it's, it's just holding a bit more residual moisture and that's obviously providing a nice little environment for these diseases to take hold. Now we are very much supposed to be talking about animals, we'll come back to that, is that of course your stock, they're just like us, that they're less likely to want to eat crops covered in silt or mud. So if conditions are firm underfoot and you are able to start grazing, we might expect that the feed intakes, like the voluntary feed intakes of your animals, could be lower on silt-covered crops compared to nice clean crops. We want it to stop raining. You know, you guys just need some sun in your, in your world. But ironically, a little bit of steady, and we're saying steady, gentle rain, would be just be kind of nice in the coming days just to help wash some of the silt from the crops. But everything in moderation please and I'm sure actually you'd rather have some sun and some warmth um, for you both your well-being and your animals. Floodwaters bring in not only silt and deposit that on your crops and your supplementary feeds but as well as that we've got contaminants that could be risky both well as we said to the crop directly but also to your grazing animals and ultimately to you and your staff. Our floodwaters could contain anything um, particularly those of you affected by flooding from rivers where we don't know what those floodwaters have picked up. It could be contents of someone's septic tank. It could have gone through furt bins and, and dairy shed effluent. Stores of someone's ag chems, I hope not, with the price at the moment. Because of this risk of contamination, I guess, the risk to grazing crops that are contaminated really need to be made on a paddock-by-paddock -paddock basis. You know, and again, if in doubt, get some professional advice on this. In terms of summer crops, look, if the plant loss is quite substantial and the area of remaining crops quite limited and you're getting later into the summer by the time that you do crop checks, it may be that you've only got a small area of summer turnip to go and you were going to be finishing that crop anyway, um, given at the time of, of the cyclone floods that were mid-February, many of you might only have two or three weeks left. If that crop is severely damaged, a lot of plant losses, it may be appropriate with the support of uh, your rural advisor, um, your team around you to help you make that decision because sometimes if you've had a rough old few days, it's hard to make these decisions just on your own. It may be that you're better to actually to abandon that remaining crop area and instead focus on grazing less affected areas of pasture or silted pasture that needs to be eaten sooner than later and actually say, look, we only had half or three quarters of a hectare of crop left anyway and, and not putting a lot of time and effort into salvaging what may be a rapidly deteriorating remaining area of crop that's going to sort of fall over the next uh, coming days or week. On the other hand, if you have winter crops in the ground, perhaps you've got kale in the ground and it's not too badly affected, you've got a lot of time for that crop to recover. If the crop was shorter, uh, your winter crop, maybe you've got kale and uh, you've lost a lot of plants, it may not be too late to potentially uh, establish, for example, a forage rape and, and get you know a two-plant a two plant type crop going. So you've got those earlier planted kale plants. It just depends if to either drill or to broadcast if you're going to totally demolish or damage your kale crop. There's no point really doing that. But yeah, again, 
paddock by paddock, farm by farm advice that can be supported with your rural professionals around you. I guess we've touched on this point about grazing of flood-affected crops. Should we graze it? Should we not? Firstly, can we graze a crop? Look, this is going to be driven very much by both your own subjective assessment of that crop area and again, get these rural professionals involved with you, you know, uh, many, many hands make lot work and all these things. And it's going to be dependent very much on infrastructure, on fencing, on power, on stock water, culverts, that, that it's safe and able for you not only to get stock into that area, but also for uh, staff to be absolutely safe getting in there and setting up breaks in that without being at risk of harm. So it's both about people and animals' well-being. Assuming infrastructure is intact or you've undertaken some preliminary repairs and you feel that you can safely access crop paddocks, we're then going to look specifically at your crop itself. Now, if plant losses are high, we've either had a lot of lodging of crop or a lot of the rots that we mentioned before and the crop post-flood is really starting to smell and look pretty offensive from all of these rots, uh, not only the rots but also from what we call anaerobic soil conditions. So that means the soil the, you know, where the plants are trying to grow have been un- underwater for quite some time with not a lot of oxygen, so you get that really rank, rotten smell of you know, the anaerobic fermentation in the soil that really is pretty foul and or these presence of contaminants from the flood water. So you might actually see visual dairy shed effluent. The regulations and requirements now for adequate storage is hopefully that we haven't had a lot of effluent spills. Really rotten, stinking paddocks for all of those reasons may mean that abandonment of your forage crop may be your best option. But again, get someone else to help make this decision, um, particularly if you've got lots of other stuff going on in your life. I think the rationale to abandoning crop that really stinks and is rank and the soil conditions are anaerobic and still wet and boggy underfoot is that firstly, if anaerobic soil conditions mean things are boggy underfoot, well, we don't want our stock going on there anyway, just in terms of animal well-being and conditions such as foot rot that we'll talk more about shortly. And most importantly, if the forage crop, the summer forage crop smells offensive, and looks rotten, soft rot through everything. Um, you know, your plants have just turned to mush. Let's be honest with it, your stock, whatever stock class they are, are pretty unlikely to want to eat that. And my rule of thumb is, if I don't think I'd want to eat it, I don't think we should expect our high-performance stock classes to eat it either. But again, do seek support if you need to make it. We think you're going to have to make a decision to actually abandon part of a crop paddock or, or worst case, all of it. In terms of feed quality of flooded crops, well, we're assuming if crops have survived and you haven't got a lot of plant disease happening, and that's going to be the big question over days and even weeks to come post-flooding, it's, if we look at feed quality, you know, like we talk about the Room and Room Nutrition podcast, what can we expect from feed quality? Well, we just have to say, look, it depends. If the, the crop has survived and you really want a detailed breakdown of feed quality. Clearly the number one opportunity here is to feed sample it and send samples away for analysis. Looking, probably some of the keys um, that you've got to watch out for is flood damage crops quite often test with a very high ash level that reflects the soil and silt that's been deposited on those crops. So you're looking out for that. And as well, if you do happen to do a full feed analysis including trace and macro minerals, just be aware that flood damage crops can throw some really strange levels of macro minerals particularly. But the thing we look for that, apart from a high ash content, is a high iron content. Very unusually high iron contents tend to imply that you have got silt adhering to your forage crop. And on that basis, if ash is high and iron is very high, I'd ignore the rest of your macro and trace mineral results because they are going to reflect more the levels of those elements in your soil and not so much your crop. Obviously a way to get around that is to wash the samples of forage crop just with a hose at the shed and give give a good shake off before you send that sample away to get rid of any silt or adhering soil. On average, uh, flood damaged crops will probably contain less energy and crude protein than unaffected crops. 
Firstly, if you've got foliar disease or pests that have really come into roost on your crop post-flood, we've lost a lot of the healthy plant material. And as well as that, obviously, if we've had a lot of nitrogen leaching beneath the crop and the plants got very nitrogen hungry, we end up with a higher ratio of carbon to nitrogen in the total plant. In other words, low crude protein, and that be, may be lower than what you require for your stock classes. If the plants survive the initial flooding, we may, if some brassica species of crops, and particularly forage rape, we may actually see very, very stressed crops start to produce a bit of seed heads, you know, if plants have been really, really stressed. So just to watch out for this, won't necessarily happen, it's unlikely to happen with kale, but if we do see some seed head on these plants post-flood, because of stress on the plant, just be aware that these uh, reproductive parts of brassica species can sometimes contain higher levels of what we call glucosinolates, which are anti-nutritional compounds, and under some conditions these make brassicas a lot less palatable, so not so tasty, and under some extreme conditions may actually make uh, particularly cattle unwell, but Again, talk to your vet if you're concerned. If you don't have reproductive development present on your brassicas, it's less likely to be an issue than if you've got reproductive development, which is most likely, as I say, to happen on forage rape. What are some other things to think about? Well, in terms of grazing these crops, we've already mentioned it's an absolute given. If conditions underfoot are not suitable for grazing, we're not going to do it. Clearly, it's people safety first. We don't want people going into crop paddocks and sliding down gentle hills and you know, trying to get supplementary feeds and whatnot. So people safety first. And then, of course, we have aspects around animal welfare, animals in mud. It's not what anyone in the industry wants to see, let alone the consumers of our, our dairy and meat products overseas. And it's not much fun for animals uh, grazing in muddy paddocks. And in the case of lactating dairy cows, we're increasing risk of mastitis. It's a mess for you to cup cows. We're going to have to clean down udders and teats before cups on. It's a given, but of course, in this health um, health and safety and wellbeing uh, day and age, we need to look after our people and, and you too, not just your staff. When do we graze these crops? Well, we talked about conditions under foots number one. Probably the, the next point here is if you have flood-damaged um, summer forage crops and conditions underfoot are suitable for grazing, infrastructure is all intact, we'd think that you probably want to graze the flood-damaged crops sooner than later if they're still in a suitable uh, condition to be grazed. You know, they're not full of rot and everything. And we'd want to eat those first and then we'll move on to the non-flooded summer uh, forage crop paddocks later because obviously they'll hold on a little bit better albeit that summer uh, turnips for example the bulbs are probably starting to to get a bit soft now anyway but if the flood damage crops still look not too bad we'd probably get into those you know the use it or lose it kind of scenario that probably foliar disease and stem disease and bulb disease is going to get stuck into that sooner than later so in terms of fencing and power we said if your infrastructure is good to go get into that Obviously, uh, it may be just a small area of crop that's left and you're thinking, well, I haven't got power to that paddock, but the culvert's intact, I can get them off the, the race and get those cows in there. Just remembering that cattle, we've just got to break feed all of our cattle on, on brassica forage crops or, or autumn fodderbeck crops and we can't block graze it. Essentially, if you can't get power for strip grazing of your brassica crops, it's probably better just to wait until you can restore that infrastructure. While we're on that topic, what about retransitioning in the case of cattle, I guess dairy cattle, back onto summer brassica forage crops that have been flood damaged? Well, look, assuming stock were fully transitioned on the brassica crops before the floods, but out of necessity, of course, you've pulled them off crop and they've been on pasture and supplementary feeds on higher ground. The questions always come up, do we need to retransition our dairy cows back onto summer forage brassicas? Well, it depends, of course, like everything, and we don't want to be prescriptive in this podcast. We don't know exactly how long cows need to be off brassica before they lose the ability to digest brassica, but we're probably thinking like 48 to 72 hours you can discuss this with your own consultant, your nutritionist, rural merchant, um, the team of people around you about what to do. If we're taking a, a true purist approach, I suppose, which means podcasts that, that we can't comment on your particular situation, but I guess if your cows have been off 
a summer forage brassica crop due to floods for more than three days, we would suggest you might consider retransitioning them back onto crop. Essentially, that's to do with that shift in fermentation has probably changed. However, a lot is dependent on what else is in the diet. Like if you've got quite a lot of um, supplementary forage like silage and baleage in the diet, like they're chocker full of fibre, you can probably get them back onto a bigger area of brassica more quickly than if they're 100% on pasture and not so much fibre in the diet and they're having to step back onto brassicas a bit carefully. So no firm recommendation here except again to lean into your support team to come up with ideas about how you're best going to get these cows that have been off crop back onto them. One other comment around caution with break feeding of cattle on flood affected summer forage crops, specifically brassicas I guess, or perhaps autumn grazed fodder beet, would be remembering that of course across your paddock, it's not a uniform paddock, it's got humps and hollows and headlands and ponding areas where the floods ponded for longer than some of your free draining areas. And on average, compared to before the crop, you probably find that post-flooding, you've got a much greater variation in the crop dry matter yield within each and every paddock and between paddocks, of course. Now, typically, if your better crop dry matter yields are still intact, I suppose, in your free draining or higher parts of the paddocks, and you need to retransition or start back onto the crop, we'd suggest you start back onto those areas because you've got a better feel for how much crop is there. You could even get your rural merchant to come in and re-yield the better part of the paddock. And then when you're getting further across the paddock and starting to reach the humps and hollows where you've got the lower lying areas where perhaps there's more plant loss and the dry matter yield is more variable, the cows will be already transitioned back onto the crop because they've transitioned on an area where you've got more uniform crop. So I guess the take home here is we do need to take care when we're going back onto flood affected crop areas because of the variation like if you're moving the break two meters every day one day the cows might get three kilograms of dry matter of summer turnip and then as you go up a rise up the back of the paddock they're going to get more or conversely as you move into a dip in the paddock where there was ponding of water they're going to go from three kilos allocated down to one versus going up the hill on free draining areas they're going to go up to six kilos so a little bit of bouncing around and if in doubt and there's a lot of variation maybe just make sure if you're just reliant on pasture that they get a couple of kilos of baleage to go with the crop to acknowledge that there's a lot more variation and allocation of high quality summer forage brassicas for example than what there would have been pre-flooding. And while we're speaking of ponded areas on crop paddocks inevitably part of the paddock will be ready to graze, ready to go again sooner than other parts of the paddock. So here the risk we have with ponding of areas is of course our ducks, um, our pukekos, all these other wildfowl that once they start to run out of floodwaters to, to play and do their things and they're going to head straight to your ponded areas and continue to hang out in those ponded areas and clearly where they're dropping their poo in there we're going to have issues around disease spread and let's say salmonella probably is the first one to come to mind but not limited to salmonella so we want to fence those areas off chances are your stock aren't going to go into those areas anyway but let's not tempt fate and let's just not allow something like salmonella or other enteric diseases um, to come along and cause problems to your stock classes that's a good entry to the next aspect around other things to think about when we go back to graze flooded crop areas. If, as soon as we say animal health risks, you're going to understand that I'm going to be very uh, guarded in what I say to do and not to do because I will never intend to even begin to replace the advice of your very own veterinarian who knows you, who knows your herd or flock, your area, and also he or she will be out seeing other areas and will be bringing a lot of anecdotal feedback on how other people are getting on to share with you. So listen to your vet uh, and your farm consultant and your rural merchant who, are, who will be hearing about how everyone else is getting on. Hopefully you're getting that from some discussion groups and, and through your various rural networks as well. Just in terms of highlighting just a few things we need to be thinking about as far as your animal well-being when they graze flood-affected summer forage crop areas would include the following. So if we, if we just tick this off as a list, 
First thing, and we've already talked about this both in terms of podcast number one with flood-affected supplementary feeds, but now with podcast number two talking specifically about summer forage crops, is of course reduced uh, voluntary feed intake by your animals when they uh, offered your flood-affected supplementary feeds, forage crops, pasture for that matter. And I guess we're talking about the issue of feed refusal. When your stock class are offered silted, muddy, contaminated pastures, crops, supplementary feeds, if you've got a high-performance stock class, and I guess we're thinking about, for example, lactating dairy cows who have a fixed requirement uh, for nutrients to meet the demands of lactation, if that dairy cow goes into a silted uh, paddock of grass and then she goes into a silted forage crop and she has some um, not-so-tasty baleage, she still will have demands of nutrients for maintenance, for live weight gain, and for milk production. If she's not eating well enough, she may well continue to produce milk to the best of her ability, but may start to mobilise body condition. And that drop in live weight, that drop in condition, may increase risk worst case of metabolic disease or even um, means that you have to dry the herd off earlier or go to once a day or whatever. So just be aware if the flooding directly or indirectly contributes to reduced feed intake that we've just got to monitor body condition scores. So maybe book someone in to score the dairy cows now and then score them again in a month's time just to keep a handle on that so we don't have that sneaky loss of body condition over the coming weeks. For heavily in-calf Autumn calving dairy cows who are coming up towards calving, they're not quite springing yet, but soon, again, anything to do with post-flood that increases risk of excessive loss of body condition or indeed an ability to gain condition heading towards calving may increase risk of metabolic diseases as those autumn cows start to calve. And again, if in doubt, please do seek more professional advice uh, around concerns that your stock aren't gaining sufficient weight uh, and or they're losing it. Clearly, if we have mud contamination, you've done it all before through the winter and the spring, but remembering that this mud may contain more pathogens, more nasty things in the heat and humidity of summer compared to winter is, of course, mud contamination of teats and the udders of lactating cows and therefore mastitis risk. Now, this is a very specialised topic that would really encourage you to talk to your veterinarian about specific recommendations to reduce risk of mastitis in cows managed under these uh, very wet, muddy conditions. Just be aware it's to do with you know, the cleanliness of teats and udders. Um, it cups on through to appropriate um, teat spray and then timing so that they're not walking out into the paddock when their teat canals are wide open, giving time for the teat canal to somewhat close up. We've already mentioned bacterial diseases, the floodwaters and the attractiveness of ponding water to all our, our feral ducks and pukekos and Canadian geese and who knows what else, and therefore the risk of bacterial diseases, including but not limiting to salmonellosis. So just monitor your stock. Well, first, as we said, fence these areas off, but monitor stock for any signs. It could be as simple as sudden death through to sudden weight loss. You know, animals that have very high temperatures, very dull and lethargic. Scaring, but remembering they don't always have to scare just any uh, sudden onset of clinical signs uh, if they're still alive and well, but not very well, call the vet out very quickly. In terms of um, soil-borne uh, pathogens, we talked in the first part of this podcast around post-flooding, around clostridial disease, and this is obviously particularly in younger animals, so we're thinking calves heading into R1s and hoggets uh, if you're farming sheep. Now, the risk may increase um, during or after flood events due to rapid changes in types of, of diet presented to your sheep, your cattle, or deer for that matter, and or when we're grazing silted, muddy pastures or crops, our animals and our young animals particularly may be eating more mud and soil than usual and that's carrying more spores and more clostridial spores and so if you haven't already vaccinated you may need to re-vaccinate depending on your vaccination schedule um, and or look to other ways to offset risk of clostridial disease in addition to vaccination so please talk to your veterinarian about that that's a topic very specific just to you and your farm now unfortunately if stock have had to be stood off in very muddy conditions uh, during this these wet weather events not only more recent events but over the whole summer for that matter 
Obviously, it's a given that stock are more prone to foot rot just because wet feet are more likely for opportunistic pathogens to get through the skin surface and then establish themselves between the toes. And as well as that, when just, just like us, when we're getting through um, mud and silt in our gumboots, you'll feel sometimes you'll feel things underfoot. And the same is for our animals that they can't see buried. Might be some, uh, you know, roofing on or sharp stones or whatever, and they're actually causing foot damage to the claw, the actual the hoof part of the hoof that's been damaged by foreign objects that they can't see underneath silt. We already talked about contaminants in floodwaters, and again, you don't know what upstream has washed down onto your river flats, wherever your pasture or forage crops are, and I guess there's just a whole raft of potential issues, you know, leptospirosis, neospora, uh, the clostridial spores we talked about. There's a whole range of things and it's really hard to plan for contaminants from an animal health point of view, but do keep this in the back of your mind and always have a chat to your vet and just see if there's anyone else has had any issues or what you need to be thinking about, if any. And while we're talking about contaminants for lactating cows, it may be relevant that you talk with your dairy company rep just to check in um, if you need to be aware about anything to do with your lactating cows eating contaminated pastures. may not necessarily be an issue, but just for completeness. The final aspect around grazing summer forage crops after a flood event is, of course, at a whole farm level, to update feed budgets. Now that's quite an important task that you probably need to be undertaking now. Probably cash flow budgets as well, to be honest, but let's look at feed budgets in terms of keeping your stock well fed. This is a task that you might not be in the right headspace to be wanting to do at the moment. So maybe get your farm consultant to review it um, or other you know, support. If you if you just got your hands really full at the moment, talk to the Rural Support Trust and they may be able, they will be able to put you in touch with some support to look at your feed budget and just see what any flooded pastures or forage crops or supplementary feeds might have done to your overall feed budget. Sincerely hope not, but it's just something to check on. You might have lost a bit of summer crop. Um, you might have had quite a bit of damage to winter crops for the coming winter, even though that's a few months away. And of course, as we said in um, podcast number one, we talked about losses, worst case, you know, of some of your supplementary feed that may need replacing or coming in with other strategies to fill a bit of a feed hole that uh, has, has now occurred. We've talked about assessing your summer crops, so we're just revisiting this point. Ideally, you might want to dry matter yield your crop, not only to assist you with revising your feed budget, but if you do have your crop covered with insurance, then obviously to, to meet that requirement as well. It's it's tough to dry matter yield flood damage crops because they can end up very variable across the paddock and within paddocks, but uh, it, it may be very useful to do that process all the same. We've mentioned already winter crops that may have been damaged and we need them for feed, you know, perhaps 1st of June onwards. We've talked about assessing those and the suitability to carry those forward or whether we need to establish another crop in amongst that crop or look at other strategies across the whole farm to replace kilograms of dry matter that may partly be missing for example if you have very low plant population for example on a winter kale crop that that has been damaged due to flooding the other thing as well with winter forage crops is just remember that you've probably had on flooded winter crops quite a loss of plant available nitrogen under the crop so you may want to again talk to your rural merchant and just see whether even though you hadn't planned for more nitrogen or perhaps one more application that you may need additional nitrogen just to get that crop performing at its very best when you're getting into cooler um, weeks and months of the year. As far as within your feed budget review, you may need to reprioritise stock classes. Uh, for example, if you're split calving on a dairy farm, obviously our highest requirement for our stock classes at the moment will be autumn calvers our in-calf cows, uh, mixed-age and rising two-year-olds, and setting them up well for calving. So we'll need to be monitoring cow body condition score and or live weights of your R2s and your mixed-age, and looking after them. Your second priority will be your spring-calved cows, particularly those calving the first three weeks um, of spring calving, if, particularly if you're calving quite early, perhaps, in more northern regions of New Zealand. And as a priority stock class, if you have your heifer calves at home, it's an absolute given. If you're not already routinely monitoring them for live weight gain, probably get them looked at as well. 
On the sheep side of it, certainly assessing body condition score and also live weights of both mixed-age ewes and ewe hoggets as well if you're still going to uh, give it your best and do some hogget mating. Or you may, if things are a bit tough for you, to abandon hogget mating just, just for this year and pick it up again next year. So within your feed budget, start planning now, particularly heading towards the winter if you have lost valuable feed and you can't replenish that as obviously use the information that you have on hand at the moment, assess the feed, decide what can be fed and can't be fed if you need to feed some feed sooner than later, if it's going to deteriorate with storage and again prioritisation of feed amongst the top priority stock classes on farm will be your task for the coming weeks. So... Yeah, feed budgeting, big picture's hard work when you're tired and feeling a bit overwhelmed by everything. So, hey, there's lots of people out there ready to help you. Rural Support Trust, but one of a group of people that will put you in touch uh, with the right people to get you the help that you need. So, look, it's time to be bringing this latest podcast to an end. Again, just a final reminder that we've got some discussion points covered in this podcast that are of a very generic, you know, like a very general nature, not prescriptive. And please do remember, of course, that your first point of contact for help and advice remains very much your consultant, your veterinarian, uh, your rural merchant. On the crop side of things, my colleagues, I've got a wonderful team throughout New Zealand from the PGG Rights and Seeds team. They're available to help out with crop-related and pasture-related support. Dairy and Z and Beef and Lamb both have very good stuff on their website. For example, Dairy and Z have excellent resource around making decisions to do with flood-damaged pastures, for example. Well worth a read and a look. And then, of course, very much looking after your friends and family and in turn lean on them as well because uh, we'll share the load and get through this together. Anyway, finishing up, just to say that uh, this has been uh, myself, Charlotte Westwood, from PGG Rights and Seeds, just finishing up this second in a two-part series about getting through our recent floods. We're going to sign off now and all we can say to you and to your, your family and your friends and your support team around you, do take care, look after yourselves, stay safe and, and uh, hang in there over the, the coming uh, weeks to just get things back on track. Hey, if this podcast has been helpful for you, be stoked to hear if that has been the case and you haven't listened to part one about supplementary feeds and floods, just jump back in and have a listen to that. And of course, if overall these two podcasts have been even a little bit of help um, for you, do let your friends and family know and, and get them to listen in. And of course, uh, look, we're open to suggestions. We can um, turn around advice and, and podcasts uh, really quickly for you. If there's anything else that you think will be useful that, you can, that we can help you with, well, just let us know and uh, we'll try and match that for you. In the meantime, all the best team. Uh, keep up the good work and keep well. Cheers. Cheers.